Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Good morning. If you have your Bible open to Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Normally, I, after the service, I would hang around and visit with you. Um, but today, I've got to get out of town quick. Uh, I'll be doing a funeral this afternoon for my high school football coach who coached in George West for many years, uh, coached down in GP for a couple of years, uh, but it's a great honor uh, to go um, take care of his family and see some friends and uh, things like that. So uh, I'm not around. It's not because I don't like you or I don't want to get to know you. Just got to go, go take care of some business. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, we were introduced to a young man by the name of Stephen. Stephen... Um, is a man who was not afraid to step on toes, as you will see in chapter 7. It's also been said, though, about Jesus regarding his preaching. I've shared this with you before. I'll just remind you again uh, that in Scripture, he's the preacher who made his congregation smaller with his sermons. He would draw a large crowd with food, like donut holes, Uh, and then he would preach something like this, unless you deny your mother and father, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That's a quick way to lose a crowd. But it was the truth, and the people left. Why? Because Jesus did not let the crowd control the truth. Stephen took a cue from Jesus. The message that he presents in chapter 7 is a message that could have been changed because of the crowd that was accusing him of blasphemy and other sins. But he was a young man who boldly stood on the word of God, changed life by Jesus Christ to proclaim the truth to the nations. If you would, stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 6. Verses 8 through 15, and then we'll actually spend the rest of our time in chapter 7. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed both of Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the elders, excuse me, the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, 
and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your messenger named Stephen, that we find in him a man of God, a man who knew the word, a man who trusted most of all in Jesus and the presence of Jesus in his life. Father, as we are in your word this morning, I pray it is our desire to hear what you have to say, to hide your word in our hearts, but not just to hear and hide, but to do what it says. Father, in our trouble, help us look beyond the adversary, help us look beyond the walls, the trials, the hardship that we are facing. And as we look beyond those things, we see our Savior who died in our place. Father, help us to stand and not grow weary in your grace and in your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Friend, Stephen is a man who lived the mission of God. He was not long in the church. He wasn't a long-tenured pastor or a short-tenured pastor. He had hardly no tenure. He was a deacon for just a short amount of time and a servant in the church. But verse 8 of chapter 6 that we looked at last week says that Stephen is full of grace and power. And we read Starting in verse 8 today, or well, last week was full of grace and power. Last, excuse me, last week was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. This week is grace and power. All of those godly qualities, godly qualities that we would desire to be said about us, that we should desire to be said about us. But verse 10 says that as the opposition arose to his teaching, he was working, performing great wonders and signs. This is not of Stephen's doing, of course. This is the Holy Spirit's work in Stephen's life. The Holy Spirit is indwelling him. It has filled him up. He is doing these works not to draw attention to Stephen, but to draw attention to the message, which is the gospel. And as that opposition arose, he is so full of the Holy Spirit. And we see that it is not Stephen's doing, but rather it is the Lord's work in Stephen's life, in and through Stephen just like it was with Peter, just like it will be with Paul. We need to understand that what is going on in Stephen's ministry isn't because Stephen is an awesome guy. It's because Stephen trusted in Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus is changing his life, and it's because the Holy Spirit is in Stephen's life. And Stephen is trusting in the promise of Jesus when he said, Yes, Lord. He is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, when Paul writes, we are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we serve the interest of our king, not our own interest. Paul continues, since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When I say that Stephen is a man who lived the mission of God, this is what I mean. 
He is an ambassador for Christ. And he is pleading, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so Stephen's message is, uh, it consumes chapter 7. All of the chapter is, is Stephen's message. Would he simply direct you to this truth, that it is history that points us to Jesus. When we look at the Old Testament, there is a common thread all throughout, and it points us to the Messiah. It, pro- it points us to the promise of a coming Messiah. And as he answers this question by appealing to the history of Israel, he doesn't just stop with Moses. He goes all the way back to the beginning with Abraham. And ultimately, his answer to their question in verse 1, where he says, are these things true? Ultimately, his, answers, his answer is this. It's not me, it's you. <laughs> I'm not the one tearing down Moses. I'm not the one guilty of blasphemy. I am not that. That's not what I'm doing. I am revealing the truth of God's promise to you, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not me, it's you. You're the ones guilty of this sin. And God has made a way for you to find forgiveness if you'll just trust in Jesus. There were several times in Jesus' own ministry that he would point his people back to the Old Testament. In fact, in John chapter 5, he said this to them. He said, you pour over the scriptures. That's not the New Testament because it's not written yet when Jesus is saying these things. He's pointing back to the what we call the Old Testament. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you can have life. All that you're looking to, all that you're pouring over, the answer is right in front of you, and you're missing it. You're rejecting what it's pointing you to. And Stephen takes a very small sample of the grand narrative of the Old Testament. And in doing so, he keeps... He really keeps the main thing the main thing. He doesn't go off chasing rabbits. He, keeps, he, he stays on point with that very consistent plot all throughout, trusting in the promise of God, trusting in the promise of God. And the great heroes of the Old Testament never saw God as being confined just to the temple or the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting, or, or, or anything like that, like the Jews in Stephen's day in the time of the Acts, like, like they did. So we look at Stephen's sermon this morning. We're going to fly through it. The first stop is Abraham. You can find the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Abraham and the promise. And that key theme, again, is the promise. The promise that God had made to Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham, and renewed time and time again. One of the problems that Israel would have in this time in Acts is that they, 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 they could not disassociate God's blessing from the gift of the land. Now, that promised land was very special, but it is not the only place that God could work. It's not the only place. God was not confined to the borders of the promised land. And that's what Stephen is going to try to do. In each one of these stops along the history uh, journey, he's going to try to point them to say that God is not bound by what you think he's bound to. He's not bound by the land. He's not bound by location. In fact, when he called Abraham, Abraham was not in the promised land. He was a long way off. 
He had to go on a journey that God was going to take him on. And even then, the land was not for him, but rather for, rather for his people, his descendants after him. And the promise comes to Abraham. The promise is renewed to his descendants. And yet, as God keeps making this promise, if you're reading through the story, you say, well, wait a minute. Abraham and Sarah cannot conceive. How is he going to have descendants if they can't have a child? And then late in Abraham's life, well beyond years, is his wife, Sarah. God finally opens her womb, and here comes a bouncing baby boy named Isaac, which means laughter, because they laughed. I mean, I would too if I was like 99 years old. I mean, I'm 43, and we just got three more. I'm still kind of laughing at that. I'm like, whatever. Okay, God, yes, yes, Lord. But Stephen makes a point to say that Abraham never set foot on that promised land, not even a foot of ground, but it was promised. He's always looking to the promise. Look to the promise. The promise was of God, not necessarily the land. So the promised child shows up, Isaac. This is the path forward. Isaac fathers Jacob, who then becomes the father of the 12 tribes, the patriarchs of Israel. And that gets us to the next stop, the man named Joseph and his journey. As he turns to one of the sons of Jacob named Joseph, we remember, you might remember, the story of Joseph. His brothers were quite jealous of him. So jealous, in fact, that they tried to kill him. They thought better of it, so they left him at the bottom of a well, really there to die. One brother thought they shouldn't have done that, and so they come back together, and they eventually sell him back into slavery. So he could go to Egypt. Not so he can go, but that's where the slave trade was going. They were going to Egypt. So he's sold into slavery, eventually taken to Egypt and sold there into slavery. And yet the whole time, great tragedy. Jacob thinks his son is dead. And yet God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph every step of the way. Every step of the way. He sold into slavery. Eventually, he's thrown into prison. Eventually, he becomes the second in command in Egypt. The whole way, God was with him. Every step of the way. Again, it's all about the promise. God is working the story. It is his story. God's presence was with Joseph. Whether he was in the house of Pharaoh or he was at the bottom of a well struggling to hang on to life, God's presence was with him. We also see God's power. God's power was real in, in Joseph's life as he rescued Joseph multiple times. Finally, we see God's provision of grace and wisdom as Joseph is propped up and set up as the second in command, second only to Pharaoh himself. And God has given him that position so that he can save his family as his family is caught in a severe famine. We need to see, friends, that God is not limited by our limited designs on who we think he is. He is the God of Scripture. 
Our God is not unlimited. He is able to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. But the problem here is that this crowd that's listening to Stephen had put God in a box. I'm rather tired of cardboard boxes. I've been living with them now for about four or five months. I'm ready to see them go. And every day I get to take a few more to the trash can. Makes me a happy man. (laughs) If I don't like cardboard boxes, do you really think God likes being put in a box by his people? They had put God in a box called the temple, contained only in Jerusalem. This is the place where God is met, and that's it. And if you've put God in a box in your life, I do well to quote to you the the title of one of J.B. Phillips' books, which is, Your God is Too Small. As the church, we must live in the protection of God's providence just like Joseph. We must move forward with the same faith that Abraham had who believed God and his promise. Then we move on to Moses and deliverance. As the story continues, Joseph dies, another generation comes up, a new Pharaoh comes to power who knew nothing of Joseph, knew nothing of the past, and he enslaves God's people, the Hebrew people. Here comes Moses, good old Moses. Stephen references three three life stages of Moses in his sermon. And yet we see at each moment God was with Moses at each point along the way. Stage one was his birth. Pharaoh had ordered the death of the Hebrew boys. A genocide, an infant, infant side, if you will. Yet Moses' mother is able to protect him and hide him puts him in the basket, floats him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the river, brings him in, raises him. Here is this boy who is sentenced to death, now being raised in the home of the man who sentenced him to death. Only God can do that. That's stage one. Stage two, verses 23 through 29. This is about the middle age in his 40s. Moses gets the idea that he was to be the savior of God's people. And so, in a roundabout way, he begins to think through how how could he free them. And he, he sees an Egyptian soldier, a guard, beating a Hebrew slave. He takes it upon himself to bring justice to this moment. He kills the Egyptian guard. You'd think that might cause a revolution. This might be the launching point for God's people to finally break free from the chains of Egypt and Pharaoh. Not so. The people actually rejected him in that moment. The next day he saw two Hebrew slaves fighting. And he called them to stop and he said, Would you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Moses, he, he ran away. The third stage of Moses' life that Stephen touches on is the actual time of ministry. He's out in Midian tending the sheep and God speaks to him through the burning bush. One of the greatest moments of scripture. It's a great moment that's outside of the promised land, 
outside of the tabernacle, outside of the temple, which is the context where Stephen is dealing with in that day that he's preaching, all of this happening, God's presence speaking to God's man outside of all of these places, and God says to Moses, Moses, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, in Stephen's day, that kind of comment got him in trouble because the holy place was in the temple, not outside on common ground or out in the wilderness. But wherever God is, Scripture points to us that it is holy ground and it is sacred because God is there. And so God calls Moses out of exile in Midian to lead the people to freedom. There's so many stories through the next 40 years of Moses' life as he leads the people. I mean, there's the Red Sea. Well, there's the plagues first, then there's the Red Sea. So many other things happen along the way, and yet God is with him every step of the way. Just like Moses, Jesus even more so was strong in word was strong indeed. And just like Moses was rejected, so was Jesus. And just like in Moses' day, people were suffering in physical slavery to Egypt. When Jesus came, he came to free us, those who are suffering in their sin and held captive by its power. He came to set us free as he died on the cross for our sins, and yet is alive today and ready to change your life and set you free from that which ensnares you. The last stop on this journey was Israel, worship, and the temple. Israel had had a a tendency to always shun God's appointed leader and turn back to idols. With Moses, they wanted to be done with Moses and turn back to Egypt. Can you believe that? They wanted to leave freedom and go back to slavery? But that's, what, that's where they were. In verse 39, Stephen says, Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Verse 40, one of the saddest moments in the Old Testament. They had just crossed through the Red Sea. I mean, think about that. Crossing, crossing the bay here to, to the islands on dry ground, and then you get out there, and the God who delivered you, you turn your back on him for an idol. That's, that's similar to what's happening here. They tell Aaron, Aaron, make us, a, make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, who brought us out of the land, we don't know where he is, what's happened to him. Well, while they're down there doing that, he's up on the mountain hearing from God again, taking down the Ten Commandments. <laughs> that's kind of an important moment, don't you think? But they're not willing to wait. Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. How could these people turn away from God who who who, so so easily? How could they turn to to something that that has no power? How, How could they turn to a golden image, a calf, no less? Well, if you really think about it, it's easier than you think. We do it all the time. Anytime we usurp authority. In our own life, when Christ is clearly, for the follower who claims to follow Jesus, clearly is supposed to be the king of our life. Anytime we say, no, Lord, not this time, we have shunned 
our leader. It's a, con- it's a concept that really is quite simple. You, you create the idol, create the image, create the ideology that you want to follow, then you control the idol, the image, the, the, the ideology. But you can't do that with the God whose name is I am who I am. He doesn't play by that set of rules. He's got his own rules. What they did with the golden calf is not all that far off from what people did to Jesus, but even more so in his rejection at the cross. Essentially saying, God, we reject what you're offering in your Savior. We're going to keep trying it on our own. Flash forward to the time when Solomon builds the temple. God had, had set that up. He, he okayed it. He designed it. They took down all of the measurements, did Solomon, and collected all of the goods and, and erected that temple. It was something to behold. It was a good gift from God to his people. And they were not wrong for constructing the tabernacle first with Moses and then the temple with Solomon. But the problem came when they believed that that was the only place God could be found when they put him in that box. Friend, God never needed a place to call home. He doesn't need a place to live. Why? Because the scriptures say in verse 49, God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all of these things? Friends, we must worship not with external devotion given to an image or an ideology or an idol of our own creation. But we come to worship in spirit and truth in the name of Jesus Christ as we are filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Then we turn. Stephen cranks it up one more time in verse 51, and he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did so You do also. Not a way to win friends and influence people. He took his cue from Jesus. Proverbs 29.1 says, One who becomes stiff-necked after many reprimands will be shattered instantly beyond recovery, beyond repair. That's one of the greatest sins and saddest moments when we resist the Holy Spirit. But that's exactly what they do, rejecting the Holy Spirit. Their hearts, their ears were not in tune with what God was saying through his, through his prophet, through his man, Stephen, through Jesus most of all. Friend, that's a terrible place to be, to keep pushing God away, keep pushing God away, keep pushing God away. The scripture is true. Eventually, you push so many times, and after so many reprimands, you're shattered. But I'm here to tell you that while you've got a heartbeat and while you're drawing breath, there is still time. It's not too late. If you hear the Spirit of God drawing you and you sense Him drawing you unto Himself this morning, do not delay. Do not delay. Then the consequences of Stephen's sermon, the time of invitation drew rocks. 
The people were so enraged, verse 54 says, and they gnashed their teeth at him like wild animals. Yet Stephen is not phased. You read the text, he's full of the Spirit, even still as he's about to be martyred for the message of the gospel, for Jesus' name. Of course, Stephen's going to pour salt on the wound one more time, and he really hits them hard with this truth in verse 56. Full of the Spirit, he looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He looks and he says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You'll not see Jesus standing in too many other places. Most of the time he's sitting next to God. But here he's standing. I believe Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do, acknowledging Stephen before the Father because Stephen acknowledged Jesus before man when it was not popular to do so. Psalm 116 says, the death of his faithful ones is valuable in the Lord's sight. In verse 59, while they were stoning Stephen, they drug him out of the town and began to stone him. He calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He kneels down and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he fell asleep, which is the New Testament way for believers to say he had died. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Oh, that we could finish each day the way Stephen just finished his life, forgiving those who've hurt us the way Stephen did as he's being pummeled with stones. Friends, Stephen made his mark in the story of God's redemptive plan and a plan for the church. As we've looked through the book of Acts, we're looking at the surrendered church, the church that is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Friends, the surrendered church we must be ready to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. The truth of the promise that we believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, that if we would believe in him, we would not perish but have eternal life. If we are ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, we too, like Stephen, will make our mark for God's glory and our good with a hard-hitting truth of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be ready, friends.